Welcome to another podcast from Best Self Magazine, the leading voice for self-empowerment, holistic health, and authentic living. Once upon a time, a beautiful fairy tale romance was born. It was love at first sight for Mark and Julia Lukacs on the campus of Georgetown University when they were only 18 years old. Madly in love, they graduated, married, secured dream jobs, and rode off into the sunset, moving across country to live in San Francisco, one of the most desirable cities in the world. Life was full of promise, and they dreamed, plotted, planned, and saved for the bright future ahead. They had it all mapped out, until the in sickness and in health, through good times and in bad, part of their vows was put to the test, and put to the test, and put to the test. In 2009, when Julia plummeted into the abyss of mental illness after a psychotic break, the map of their life rerouted, and nothing would ever be the same. In his recently released memoir, My Lovely Wife in the Psych Ward, Mark Lukacs, a teacher and freelance writer, depicts the side of mental illness often overlooked, from the partners, the family, the bystanders. It is a journey to healing in all of its guts and glory. It is candid and real, gut-wrenching at times, and utterly inspiring. It is a brave account of what really happens when a family is ravaged by mental illness. There is no glossing over what it really took to find their way back to each other. I'm Kristen Noel, Editor-in-Chief of Best Self Magazine, and I'm honored to sit down today with Mark Lukacs to delve further into this amazing story. It is a book I couldn't put down. While I was rooting for their love story, I didn't know how it would end. It made me question myself, it made me think about our capacity to love one another, and it made me revere the power of love, because at the end of the day, we all want love to win. Welcome, Mark. Kristen, that was like the most beautiful introduction, so thank you. What a great way to get things started. It's great to be talking to you. Well, I'm so glad that we have finally coordinated here today. And again, as I did say in the introduction, it was a book I couldn't put down. Well, that's a flattering compliment. Well, I'm thrilled it landed in my hands. Just to start off, because there's so much I want to delve into, I want to commend both you and Julia for sharing this story, because I know you wrote it, but this is your story. And I think a good question to start with before anything is why? Why share this story of this very personal and at times excruciatingly painful journey? Well, you know, I think the answer to that is twofold. And I think the first answer is actually personal. I'm not a trained writer. You know, I'm a high school history teacher and I never really envisioned writing a book. But after, as you, as you said in your intro, Julia, you know, she's, she has bipolar disorder. She's been hospitalized a few times. And after her first hospitalization, we had a really hard time reconnecting as a couple because our experiences of her psychosis and then depression were really different. And if we tried to talk about it, it got really tense and brought up a lot of really bad feelings and resentment and uh, difficult memories. And so even though we went to couples therapy and everything, and so kind of on a whim, I tried writing about it for Julia. Like it was an audience of one, you know? And I thought, maybe if I can sit here and sort through my thoughts in a way where it's not just I'm blurting them out and I'm wrapped up in the emotion, but I'm really trying to like take the time to groom them so that they're accessible for her and maybe she'll be able to hear them 
and we can process and move forward together. And that began the journey of writing about this. You know, it was really so that Julie and I could uh, reconnect as a couple. And I have to say on that front, like it felt like this book has been a really big success because there's no question about it that just the writing and Julia reading and us talking about it subsequently really helped us to process as a couple what this means for us. But that's just the personal answer, right? The public answer, why take a, a book that was written for one person and make it available for the world is really because I think that when Julia was hospitalized, I remember sitting in the waiting room and being on my phone and trying to Google my way to understand what was happening, right? Like I was trying to understand some of the terms that doctors were using. And I actually learned a fair amount about mental illness, which was great because there's a lot of really good resources out there. But I found pretty much nothing that helped me understand what I was about to go through. Like, what was this journey going to look like for me? What were some of the choices that I was going to have to face? And I don't know if I've ever felt more alone than I did that day in the waiting room with Julia locked away on one side and this gigantic unknown and no one that I could find on the internet or anywhere that had gone through something similar. And so I think that the motivation was that Julie and I together could be a voice where hopefully other families could find our book and feel less alone as they go through their own journeys. And so that's really why we've now got this book out. Yeah, that's a beautiful reason. I mean, to create connection. Exactly. You know, it's really hard to believe that in this day and age, you would have such a hard time finding other stories. I know. I was struck by it too. Now, granted, this is 2009, right? So like, you know, the iPhone's only a few years old, all social media is still just kind of catching on a little bit. And so like, I'm a reader and I'm a historian and I go looking for answers. And so I was looking for where's the book about what is going to happen to me, you know? Right. And I found a lot of books about what Julia was going through and I read every single one of them. But I just couldn't believe it that like no one was telling this story. And subsequently, I've come across a few more communities. And there is a great support group for families called the National Alliance on Mental Illness, also known as NAMI. But the logistics of actually getting to that support group turned out to be really difficult for me. And so I never really was able to take advantage of that. But yeah, I, I just couldn't believe that there was this total void. And so I wrote an article back in 2015 in Pacific Standard Magazine. And it kind of became like the template, the basis of the book. It's what got me a book deal in the first place. And that article, which talked about the caregiving side of mental illness and the struggle and some of the difficult choices I had to make and some of the internal struggle around guilt and responsibility, that article kind of blew up on the Internet. And I think that really demonstrated to me just how many people there are out there who are desperate to have their experience validated and feel like there's someone else out there who's gone through it. And so I've just been, you know, I've had a lot of really amazing interactions with readers and it brings me to tears when I hear from people who say, Hey, I got to say thank you because I'm in something so similar and it's just so nice to know that I'm not alone. And hopefully we're going to dive into a lot of this, but truly this is the human story. This is the human story of all that unfolds around it. And as a result of it, 
and it's complicated and it's messy and it's painful and it's glorious and it's beautiful and it's all those things, right? And that's yeah. not what you're going to find on Google. I agree with you too. You know, and I think the book too, it's, it's obviously about mental illness, but I think it's from a broader standpoint, it's about how every relationship we're in is tested at some point by crisis. And so how do you try to work together to get through that crisis, you know, and, and you're right. That's, you're not going to find that answer on Wikipedia or like the 13 ways to get, you know, those listicles that you find on the internet. Instead, it's like, you need to take the time to really sit down and process and, and take in the whole story. Speaking of the story, let's go back to 2009 and just paint a picture of this love story and paint a picture of what happened. Yeah, it was like an armed fairy tale uh, romance. I mean, as you said, we met super young. We moved out to California and felt like we were living our dreams. We were so happy and made a nice friend group. And Julia was thriving in her career. I mean, she's always been really ambitious and successful. And so no surprise, she was doing well in work. And I was teaching high school and loving that. And I remember my dad came out and visited us in the fall where California is at its most appealing, right? And we we're on a walk and he just put his arm around me and he's like, you done good. Like you, 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 yeah. you found a pretty good life for yourself, you know? And I couldn't have agreed more. You know, we were really, really fortunate. And so then when we were 27, Julia transitioned to a new job at a new company and almost immediately things took on a different tone where this really confident, successful woman that I had known for nine years was all of a sudden really uncertain at work. She didn't know what to do. She was getting emails and not sure how to respond to them. So she'd send them to me, like the drafts that she was working on. And these were like one or two sentence replies that Julie was apparently working on for hours. And I was like, what's going on here? You know, like you're so good at your job. You've always been so good. Even back when I knew you in college, like she had an almost perfect GPA and really great internships over the summer. And so I just couldn't understand what was happening. And to be honest with you, I think I was kind of uh, impatient and frustrated because I was like, don't you see how great things are? Like, what are you so worried about? Why are you so preoccupied and, and concerned about not doing well? You've always done well, you know? So what began is like getting stuck at work grew and she lost her appetite and would just kind of pick at her food rather than eat it. So of course she lost a lot of weight. She began to have trouble sleeping because she was so preoccupied with what she wasn't doing at work and what was happening that she just couldn't let those thoughts go at the end of the day and would take hours to fall asleep. And then unfortunately that transitioned to not sleeping at all. And then all those combinations led to her starting to experience delusions where she was basically hearing things that weren't real and believing things that weren't real. And that at first were maybe kind of reassuring, like, Hey, it's okay. Everything's going to be fine. And then the delusions became really dark where it was like, you're not going to be okay, Julia. You're never going to get better. It's not worth saving you. It's not worth trying to help you. You may as well just end it all now. And so, um, to give you a sense of the timeline, she started her job in mid July and I took her to the ER over Labor Day weekend. So this is only about six weeks for her to go with no previous signs of mental illness, no mental illness in her family history, 
And six weeks later, I'm sitting there in the emergency room with the doctor saying, your wife's having a psychotic break and we need to take her to the psych ward for inpatient treatment. And I was just like, what, like what, you know, there's that talking head songs. How did I get here? You know, but that's like, how did I get here into this beautiful life? And I think that I had sort of that kind of deer in the headlights at how good things were before. And then all of a sudden, six weeks later, it was the exact opposite. Like, how did we get to this situation? I just couldn't get it. I couldn't understand what was happening. I'd love it if you would just describe that decision to take her to the emergency room, because that also opened up a whole other can of worms. Yeah. So her father had flown in. Julie's from Europe. And so her dad had come out because we thought this was connected to work. And Julie and her dad really connected around work. So we were there together. And I woke up one morning and Julia was pacing around the house. And she said, the devil's here. And he says, I'm never going to get better. and There's no point in trying. So we should just give up. And I woke up my father-in-law. I said, look, Julie had seen a therapist and like once or twice. And I was like, Romeo, that's my father-in-law's name. We are over our heads. We don't know what to do. We can't help. We need to take her to the doctor. And he totally agreed. We basically ended up having to kind of corner her. It was so urgent that she explained to us what was happening. She had all these big things she had to get off of her chest and she just kept talking to us. And we were like, Julia, we need to go to the hospital. We need to go to the hospital. And she just wouldn't have any part of it. So we actually had to carry her into the car, which was a really tough moment, you know, for her to be physically resisting and like calling out and like literally grabbing onto doorknobs and uh, doorways to try to stop us. And me and my father-in-law are sitting here carrying her. And when I looked up and saw him that he was crying, that was when I realized how uncontrollably I was crying, you know? And we took her down into our garage and got her in the car and drove her to the hospital. And even on the way there, actually, as we were driving through Golden Gate Park, Julia tried to open the door and jump out of the car. Like, it seemed like that was what her intention was. She'd open the door and was taking off her seatbelt. And I pulled over and slammed the door. And we actually moved her then into the back of the car to sit with my father-in-law so he could literally physically be with her. It's like the stuff out of nightmares, you know, to have to do that to someone you love and care for and and now don't recognize all of a sudden anymore. And also, once you bring them to the hospital, don't they commit them to stay for a certain period of time? Yeah. And they're like, okay, so this is an involuntary hold. That's a minimum of a 72-hour hold. And we're going to basically observe and see what's going on and uh, offer her medication. But Julia was legally allowed to refuse the medication This is at least the way it is in California. I don't know how it is in other states. But after the 72 hours, the doctor who had been observing Julia makes a recommendation to a judge about whether they can now legally require that she be there for longer and also if she can be forced to take medication even if she doesn't want to take it by choice, which means the equivalent of basically people pinning her down and giving her injections. When I took Julie to the ER, I knew she needed help, but I didn't know what that help was going to look like. But when we actually got to the psych ward and it kind of looked right out of the movies with like literally bars on the windows and, you know, fluorescent lighting and not a lot of fresh natural light or fresh air or anything. I was like, 
she's not supposed to be here. Like right. this is the wrong place. And how's she going to get better here? Yeah. What did I just sign us up for? You know, like this is a disaster. Uh, and so I kind of like panicked when we got there, but she was in already, you know, we kind of had crossed the point of no return. And before we go on, I have to say that one of the points of this book actually though, is to kind of demystify the psych ward. The authentic experience of our first hospitalization was horrifying, but she's had multiple hospitalizations. She's been in the hospital three times, each in a different hospital. And each time it becomes less scary and we're more accepting of it. And I'm less terrified and I'm less distrusting. And I'm more like, okay, I get it that this is why they do things here, you know? So like, there's no question about it that the first exposure is really striking and unsettling, but prolonged exposure, which, you know, unfortunately we've had, I've grown to just sort of like put the psych ward in its proper place. It's not like the horror film setting, like it often is in movies, you know, right. it's, it's also a place where people actually do get better. And it's important to at least acknowledge that. Well, there's a couple of things I want to read from that 2009 period of September. Julia was given a diagnosis ultimately at that point, which was schizophrenia. Uh -huh. And you have a couple of things here. You said with one word, I had lost my wife and gained a lifelong patient. And you also began questioning. You said, I was learning that psychiatry and the prescribing of medications is more art and guessing game than science, because in fact, Julia wasn't schizophrenic. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. You know, what I've learned about psychiatry is a diagnosis is like, if you've got seven of these 10 symptoms, then you might have this, but there's also another diagnosis that has a lot of those same symptoms on its list. So what if you have seven of one list, but six of another, you know, like, what does that mean? And then similarly, because they're not quite sure about the labels, it becomes sort of like, well, we'll try this medication, but we're not sure if it's actually going to be the right medication, you know? So it's just a lot of experimentation. And I didn't know that about this field of medicine when I was first introduced to it. You know, I thought it was a medical field and it is a medical field, but I thought it was like, you know, if you break your arm, you know exactly what to do and you know how long it's going to take to heal and you just like move on, right. you know, as compared to if they're like, you break your arm, well, we could put it in a sling or we could try this cool new treatment or this thing or this thing. And we're not sure. And actually one of these might make everything worse. You know, the irony of a lot of these medications is that the symptoms that they're trying to address can actually get significantly worse if it's the wrong pill, you know? Absolutely. And so that's why they kept her in the hospital because they needed to be able to see immediately what the impacts of these pills were. And then once she was out of the hospital, she was in an outpatient program, which was three days a week. And really the main purpose of that, yeah, they had like group therapy and all these different activities, but the main purpose was to see a doctor with that much frequency so that they could continue to fine tune and tweak because usually patients don't see their psychiatrist. It's like a couple times a year at most because you're not changing much. But if you are changing stuff a lot, it's really important that a doctor can see you in order to respond to what they're seeing. Well, I also think it helps patients assimilate back into their lives. Oh yeah. That was critical too. You know, like having some time rather than just jumping right from like being in the hospital to like 
trying to resume a full-time working load. Like I can't even imagine that, you know? And instead her outpatient program was really intended as like a stepping stone back to normal life. Also, you said that it afforded you some time to go back into your life as well and to take care of yourself. Here you were like running around frenetically trying to manage all of this and you have all of your, your, either your running shoes or your surf equipment in the back of the car and, you know, you drop her off and then you'd run to the beach and try to squeeze in some self-care. Yeah, exactly. I think, you know, Kristen, I've been a very happy-go-lucky guy for my life. Until Julie got sick, I didn't realize how much work it takes to be happy, you know, and how much you have to make deliberate choices and schedule times to nurture yourself, you know, because it just was in my DNA and, and it just kind of came easily. But when Julia was not doing well, those three hours that she was in that outpatient program, they were literally my only nine hours in the entire week when I wasn't the primary person responsible for Julia as she was actively suicidal, you know? Right. Well, I guess we have to also get into the story about how Yeah, yeah, yeah. To get everyone caught up to speed here. Basically, she was in the hospital psychotic for 23 days. They pumped her with a lot of medication, antipsychotics, which since psychosis is about like your thinking is going so fast, the the primary purposes of antipsychotics are to slow down your thinking and to mute the psychosis. And they were effective in that regard. You know, the psychosis faded, which was great. But on those meds, Julia was really slow, physically and mentally. It was hard to engage in conversations because just her processing was much slower. Or she was also, in the wake of the trauma of being hospitalized, Julia was deeply suicidal, you know, and like just really, really hopelessly depressed, where it was an effort to get her out of bed in the morning. And I basically felt like I had to just kind of plan our days so that she wouldn't just sit around and think about killing herself, you know? And also talk about hiding the medicine. Yeah. So she hated the medicine as prescribed because she was gaining weight on it and it made her slow. But she also saw the medication as a way to overdose and commit suicide. So... I basically hid her pills throughout the house and would change up the hiding place like every two days. And so each night when it was medicine time, I'd lead Julie into our bedroom, sit her on the bed, close the door. Oh my gosh. I know it was terrible, right? This is just so terrible to have to do. But like I would pretend to search through the house so that she couldn't like auditory get clues of what room I was going to. And so I'd like, look through every closet and look through every drawer and eventually of course find the pills because I knew where they were and then take out the dose and then come back in the room and watch her as she took them and make her open her mouth to make sure she took them. I mean, you know, this is like how horrible to have to do in a relationship. I mean, you can imagine why after she got better, it was really hard for us to reconnect. Let's also make this clear too, that this became a 24 hour job for you. A hundred percent. And so you had to take a leave from work. Oh yeah. I was off work for almost an entire semester and I never let her out of my sight. I mean, day two, I literally stepped into the bathroom and in those two minutes, Julia had 
left the house. She had opened the front door and was just walking away with no sense of where she was going. So this was like full on caregiving mode, you know? And so again, to get back to where we all started with this, three hours a day on Monday, Wednesday, Friday, I dropped her off in her outpatient program. And so that was like my narrow window of time when I could take care of myself, you know? Well, thank God you did. I know. Thank God you did. I know that ebbed and flowed a bit for you, but thank God you had the presence of mind to do that because someone else might just curl up on the sofa and start eating bonbons, you know? I did plenty of that too, but this became my antidote to that, and which was good. The medication she took knocked her out really early and really deeply. And so she'd be asleep by like seven or eight. And then after about a month of this, like those three hours were fine, but not necessarily enough. And so that's actually when I began running at night where I would go out onto the beach at like 10 or 11 after I was certain she was down and not going to wake back up. I go out on these runs by myself in the dark, just as my way to like kind of give myself a breather. You know, I'm a really physical person and I really process my world through my physicality. I mean, I'm sitting here literally in my office at a standing desk, kind of rocking back and forth as I'm talking to you because that's just how I operate, you know? And so to be moving through life at this slower pace with Julia was really hard to be patient. And so I needed to have those moments of release where I could just kind of like, ah, you know, go out and get it all out, whether it was in the water as a surfer or running on the beach or whatever it was. You know, my grandmother used to tell me that God never gives you more than you can handle. And I certainly have questioned that notion many times. How do you feel about that? Like, where was God in all of this for you? Did you pray or meditate or scream? Or what was your spiritual grounding and foundation that kind of, you know, got you through this? Or did it morph? That's a great question, right? I, so Julie and I are both raised Catholic. And of the two of us, I historically have been more connected to spirituality than she has. In fact, there was a time in high school where I considered the priesthood. I went to a Catholic school and was friends with a bunch of the priests and talked to one of them for a while about it. But uh, I recognized that my truest vocation was actually to, to have a family and to be a dad in particular. And so I, I didn't spend too much time dwelling on that, but definitely religion's always been big for me. But the problem was, is that Julia's delusions were religious, right? They were all about like purgatory and heaven and hell. And that left a kind of bitter aftertaste for me around religion, you know, and I've always sort of struggled to embrace Catholicism given some of the flaws of what the church has done, you know? And so I would say that during this time, my spirituality really morphed to more like a polytheistic animist kind of thing where I would feel the presence of a higher being in a lot of different places. I mean, in the ocean in particular, the ocean's so vast and massive. And I had this moment in the book where I literally had two dolphins swim underneath me while I was sitting in the water, contemplating if I had the strength to carry through with this. And here come these two dolphins, which I interpreted as me and Julia, going on their journey together. And I'm like, all right, there's my sign. As long as we can do this together, we can make it, you know? But even like I would see it like in each wave, I would go and paddle out and I'd go under the wave and I felt like that was this spirit that was like 
trying to either maybe punish me if it was a wave where that was like really violent or it was trying to embrace me, you know? And so I got like kind of groovy around spirituality, to be honest with you during this time, because I definitely needed something to feel connected to. One of the things that I was amazed at was how much family support you had, which was incredible because Julia's parents at the time were in Italy Uh and both of your families just hopped on planes so much. So I was amazed when you said that you had to eventually start like scheduling them. You can come for this week. You can come for that week, but thank God you had this beautiful family support around you. Yeah, it was really fortunate, you know, to have family who was so willing and also had the resources to be able to help, you know, that like my mom could just drop everything and come and live with us and that or my mother-in-law could do the same, you know, but that abundance of family help did come with some anxiety for me because as I was kind of describing the 24-7 caregiving I was asking myself, like, God, why don't I just, like, let my friends help, you know, or let family help? But I I don't know. Maybe this is part of my Catholicism, but I kind of had this guilt because the caregiving was so much. I kind of felt guilty about asking others to help carry the load, you know, mm-hmm. certainly in the first episode. I was really worried about seeing if friends could go out to dinner with Julia so that I could have a night off because I didn't know if they were – really prepared for the fullness of what that all entailed, you know, and like what Julia was going to be like. And so family was actually kind of similar in some ways where like I felt responsible and this wasn't through any fault of them. This is just kind of how I'm wired, but I felt responsible for managing their experience of Julia. And so it actually at times felt like work, you know, even though my mother-in-law is there cooking and cleaning and doing all the grocery shopping I also felt like I wanted to try and see how she was doing emotionally and manage her experience of it a little bit. And then the same for my mom, that it was like, you know what, there's too many cooks in the kitchen here at times. And I actually just need to say no to the offer of help, you know? Right. And that's actually a part of the story that I'm still learning more about. A major thing that happened through this illness is I got a lot of blinders on in how I look at the world. Like my worldview, which had been so big, became so narrow. It's just focused on one person for so long, you know, and I'm still in writing this book and and it being available and having family members read it. It's actually been really interesting to hear their stories about what it was like for them. And these are stories that they've been sitting on for years because I hadn't really asked them that much. I've sort of made assumptions on their behalf around how they might be feeling it and making decisions based on those assumptions, but not actually like letting them have the fullness of their experience either. So I've been learning more about the the full picture. It's been really interesting. I was thinking, well, you know, that's just the way life unfolds. It sort of puts the spotlight on where we need to go next, right? Or where we need to go when we're ready. What's so beautiful about this book, and again, I'm going to go back to the notion of this is a human story because we're not going to have the time to get into everything that happens, but Julia does have two additional psychotic episodes. Right. And when I was reading this and even just looking through all my notes, you know, the things that I so appreciated you bringing into the book that really, you know, grabbed me 
were that you were living in this crisis management mode so that, you know, really all else had to be put on hold. And that included your own feelings and your own resentments. And there's a part in the book that I guess, you know, obviously there were these synapses in between these episodes where you were feeling guilt about your own feelings emerging. And like, for example, resentment, you said something about how, you know, life seemingly stood still for you in that first year, in that first episode. And you said, I ran through all the amazing things that my friends had done over the last year and referring to career successes. Our siblings all took big steps forward in their careers. It seemed that the last 11 months had been good to everyone but us. Yeah, absolutely. I had to sit there and and grin through it and pretend I wasn't so frustrated at feeling stuck because the last thing I wanted to do was be a burden on Julia, right? Like this illness she was encountering was already such a burden that I didn't feel like I could further weigh her down with my experience, you know? And so, yeah, that was tough. Literally it was that year I felt like four or five friends started companies. They just seemed like they were all thriving. And here I am thinking, God, what happened? You know? We're just stuck. We are stuck in quicksand. And so unfortunately, when Julia got better and in what should have been time for celebration, actually for me became time where I felt like it was I could finally let my guard down and I could let my real feelings come out. And that was kind of at the heart of why it was so hard for Julia and I to relate because she was like, why are you so cranky? (laughs) You know, like I'm better. Isn't that awesome? Like, this has been such a hard year. And I'm like, yeah, it is awesome that you're better. But it was such a hard year. And I had to pretend that it wasn't. And now I can't pretend anymore. And I think also, really, I was seeking validation. And I was seeking acknowledgement. And this feels like a selfish thing to say. But like, when we give of ourselves, I think we all need to be seen in that process, right? Like, at least I certainly felt that way. I was like, trying to give as much as I could, but I needed to know that Julia saw it. And I felt like the way she came out of her illness, I just didn't think she actually appreciated the real scope of what the caregiving was like for me. We all need something. And also, let's not forget, at one time we're getting those things and those needs met. And so when you lost Julia to this, you lost that. Exactly. So luckily you said you had a great therapist and yeah. and the therapist finally gave you validation and said, Mark, you've been through a tsunami. Of course you feel like shit, you know? And, exactly. exactly. And the bottom line is also with emotions, they've yeah. got to come out or they're going to yeah. come out sideways. So let's talk about how you two found each other. You made your way to couples therapy. And as you brought up, you were looking for your, where's my thank you? And instead- her rage was coming out. She called you the medicine Nazi. <laughs> right. Because all this caregiving that was very well intentioned, but it I had taken some missteps. I mean, Julia felt micromanaged and she felt suffocated even at times. And I'm like, what? That's not the thank you I was hoping for, <laughs> you know? And it felt so tragic because it's like we got through this really prolonged crisis and then now here we are and now's when the marriage feels most fragile and the most uncertain you know rationally i couldn't make sense like it didn't make sense to me and so 
now, of course, looking back, it makes a lot of sense. But at the time, I just couldn't figure it out. I was like, how are we not at the best point ever? It's just like a constant high of celebration. And so... Well, you had to catch up. You had to catch up feeling your feelings. Yeah, exactly. So what we did in order to bridge that gap, as I said earlier, a first thing really amazing medium turned out to be writing. You know, it was really helpful for me to sort out my feelings and then for Julia to be able to read it. And she has said to me, she really has learned what it was like for me by reading about it. You know, like she definitely had a very limited sense. And and I acknowledge I have a limited sense of what it's like for her. But when I was caring for her, I was so trying to understand and be as much walking with her side by side as I could, you know, and trying to understand the scope of her experience. But she was so consumed by it that she wasn't even really aware of my experience of things, you know. So that was huge. Uh, equally huge for us was actually going on a trip around the world. We kind of needed to just get out of our scene and get out of our physical space to try to like find our new rhythms. And we did a four month around the world trip. We volunteered in Indonesia for a while and then in Kenya. And that was actually like a really good way for us to be in the way that when we were newly married and moved out to California, we kind of had to depend on each other. It was similar because we were like in these new settings where we didn't know anybody. We're just kind of always learning new things. And so we had to go back to depending on each other and not being that it was just like I was the caregiver. Julia was the sick person. But instead, like, hey, we're both trying to help each other have a good trip and make the best of this and and figure out what we're going to do tomorrow and how to get there, yada, yada, yada. And so that was actually really good healing process for us. And it actually ended, our final day was in Dublin in Ireland. And we walked out to this lighthouse that I had found on the map. And it was like this really beautiful, foggy, cold day. It felt beautiful to us because that's what our neighborhood in San Francisco was like. And it just felt like home. And we were so alone. We didn't really see any people. And we had this like two hour walk out and it was great. And then on the walk back, Julia started playing around on her phone. And I was like fuming and I started walking faster and I walked away from her. I was like, how is she ruining this moment? You know, like this is such a beautiful end of the trip. And it turns out that she was writing me a letter and we were keeping a travel blog and that letter's in the book. And it just basically was what I needed to hear. It was thank you for staying with me and for helping me and even keeping me alive. And it was just like the most beautiful, perfect end to that trip that we could ask for. I was not going to let you gloss over that because that (laughs) is the most beautiful blog post I have ever read. You know, when you were just describing it and you were saying that it felt like home, that was a homecoming. That was a moment of your homecoming. And you said in the book that this was never meant to be just a fun trip to get away and explore the world. This was a healing journey for the two of us. And in reality, it was your homecoming, and it was so beautiful. Well, thank you. I, and I got to give Julia the credit for writing that amazing letter, you know? And it's true, because when we returned to the U.S., we got back on path with life. Julia got back into work. In fact, towards the end of the trip, she was applying for jobs. And so she already had interviews lined up by the time we got back. Because that's what Julia does. Exactly. <laughs> She's an amazing career woman. And best of all, what we were able to do is reapproach the prospect of becoming parents because that is something 
we had just opened the door to when we were 27. She literally had gone off birth control in July of 2009 and started that job two weeks later and then was in the hospital six weeks after that. And so we worried initially that maybe the door to parenthood had been closed. But after this trip and getting home, we talked to her doctors and said, hey, you know, like, we really want to be parents. Is it a good idea to go for it? And they were totally on board. At this point, her diagnosis was major depression with psychotic features. And so the hope was it was a one and done kind of deal. And so, yeah, that felt like the truest homecoming was now we were getting to go and embark on this new, most exciting journey together of having a child. And to fast forward, you know, it was amazing. Pregnancy for Julia was awesome. Uh, it was some of the happiest I've ever seen her. Jonas, our son, everything came out great, super healthy. We were smitten and totally in love immediately. The plan is I was going to be the stay-at-home dad. Julia was going to get back to work after an extended maternity leave. And when he was five months old, she went back to work. And three weeks later, she had her second relapse or a second psychotic episode and was back in the hospital. So that's where, unfortunately, we did have this homecoming, but now all of a sudden everything was back up in the air again. And then you were really once again torn. You said, when I was with Jonas, I was worried about Julia. When I was in the hospital, I worried about Jonas. I didn't know who I was anymore, a husband or a father. The two roles pulled me in separate directions, and I didn't know how to go in both places without being torn in half. Yeah. It's funny. I've talked about this so much. I feel like I should still get emotional, but I get emotional about this part of it because as I said earlier, I really think that my biggest calling in life is to be a, a father. It's just the most instinctive, natural thing I do. And I was so excited for it and with, wanted to be so immersed in it. And I know that like for a five month old, you want to be upbeat and cheery and baby voice and all this fun stuff. And then on the other hand, my spouse was back in the psych ward, psychotic, needed convincing to get back on her medication. And then of course, afterwards was once again, deeply depressed. And so it was just like the two parts of me demanded such different things of me. And like, how can you do both? And then even more challenging is how can you do both when those two people are literally in the same room? You know, when it was the three of us in the same room, I of course defaulted to Jonas's energy, you know, but it was actually really interesting. It was, it was, I think during the second episode and then especially during the third episode that I kind of stepped back from Julia's recovery. I think I kind of realized you had said earlier, God only gives you what you can handle. Right. And like, I think I had to realize like I couldn't be the captain of the ship of Julia's recovery, like I had tried to be the first time, I instead needed to be a father first and foremost, because our child was a dependent, you know? And the interesting thing is I think that I did that out of necessity, but I actually think that was a good thing in the long run because Julia felt less micromanaged and less suffocated by me because I was giving her more space in her recovery, you know? I literally couldn't be there in the same way that I was when it was just the two of us. And so she had more space to rely on friends that she was making through her recovery and also herself, you know? And so like a lot of that resentment of the first episode 
I think um, it wasn't as connected to the second episode and it was almost just because of it was a product of necessity. Well, I think also the way you went on to describe it was that you really, to some extent, had to make peace with this reality of what you were contending with and what was possible with Julia and that there would be relapses, there could be relapses. Also, you developed tools along the way and you said, I had already grieved a life's worth of mourning for her. I wanted her to survive her bipolar, but I knew that something someday was going to take her away, but that didn't unhinge me anymore. Yeah. To be honest, I do feel like I learned. I had to accept the finality of life through Julia's constant obsession with wanting to kill herself. You know what I mean? And I think death is such a scary thing for so many people, and understandably so, but I think that Certainly, for example, of my siblings, my grandmother passed away a few years after Julia's episode. And my other siblings were so terrified because they hadn't really confronted this sense of mortality. And since I had to kind of look it in the eye every day with Julia's suicidal feelings, I felt like I was like, yeah, you know, like, let's not forget that's the inevitable outcome for all of us. You know, and they're like, how can you say that? And I'm like, I'm saying it because it's the truth, you know? That's actually one of the notes the book ends on is that it's been two and a half years since Julia's latest episode and things feel like they're going amazing, but we can't have the naivete that this is no longer a part of our lives. Like there's still certainly the possibility that Julia could have another relapse. And so, as you said, we need to develop the tools to prioritize her health and to really try to ensure that we do the best we can to keep a relapse at bay. But despite what we do, it still might happen. You know, it still might be something we have to confront. And so how can we go about that without being so scared and so uh, having our lives be so permanently disrupted by it? But I think also what's so important is the message you put out to people who are the family and the partners and the bystanders of someone that's suffering with mental illness, it's really important to put the tools in place to take care of yourself. Totally. Because if you don't take care of yourself, you can't take care of anybody else. You know? Yeah. You know, and kind of no one else will. I mean, I hate to say that because people of course take care of each other all the time, but like the gifts you give yourself as far as loving yourself and taking care of yourself, there's just so much more potential than what, someone else could give you. I don't know if that's coming out right, but like even the most generous of people to someone else is still not giving you as much as you can give yourself. And so I felt guilty at the beginning to take care of myself. And instead now I realize I don't feel guilty about it anymore. I just know how crucial it is and how without it, I really can't be the best father or husband or teacher or writer if I'm not making sure that I get that time in each day to myself to just be alone and sort of process in the way that I need to process. Well, that's just a whole societal conversation that really has to be rescripted because we've got that all backwards. I agree with you, Kristen. You know, like I think actually there's a ton of pressure on parents to like literally sacrifice yourself at the altar of martyrdom on behalf of your children, you know? Right. And I think that that's so wrong. Like, cause instead we're, we have a bunch of like burned out anxiety plagued parents who are so worried about everything. And it's like, you know what, if you just gave yourself an hour or two and let someone else watch your kid for a little bit, 
you're going to be a better parent as a result, not a worse parent. Yeah. Well, what about also modeling healthy, holistic living? Exactly. You want to model for your child what happiness is, what health really is, and what a loving relationship is. And if you step out of that role of nurturing yourself and nurturing your love relationship, you're headed for a midlife crisis. And your kids, absolutely. They're seeing that, okay, I guess this is what you're supposed to do. You're just supposed to work, 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 and be there, be there, be there, be there, and not like take time to enjoy being alive. And you're perpetuating those cultural mispriorities, you know? So if you could reach back to yourself, that 2009 version of you, yeah, who had no idea what lay ahead of him and probably would never have been able to handle someone saying there are going to be multiple episodes ahead of you, right? what advice would you give him? Yeah, that's a tough question. Before I answer it, I just have to say, Julie and I have both definitively concluded that while we would not wish our experience on anyone, we also would not take it away from ourselves because I feel like we learned so much and grew so much as individuals and as a couple through this. I think what I would tell myself in retrospect is I try to give myself permission to take care of myself sooner. That was a lesson that took a little bit of time to get to, you know, and I think I would have probably resented things less and been less burned out by the time Julia eventually did get better. If I was able to prioritize self-care more, you know, like I'm sitting here now, I mean, that was seven years ago, you know, it took me a while to figure some of these lessons out. I think what I'd also say is that I think something I believed when I was 27, but didn't have the evidence to prove is that love is the greatest force that there is. Hmm. And I would remind myself, Hey, you know what? I know this is what you think but I'm here to tell you that it's true. And that if you love someone and they love you, you guys can make it through whatever might lie ahead. Just don't lose sight of that foundation and that everything's going to be manageable together. Mm. And again, I think that's something that, that I believed in the abstract, but I think if I could hear it like, yes, I can tell you definitively. So then that would have really uh, helped Because there were certainly moments of uncertainty. And so I think that may have taken away some of that uncertainty. I think you knew it in your heart. So how old is Jonas now? And how aware of Julia's condition is he? So he's five. And again, it's been two and a half years since her hospitalization. So he was two and a half at the last one. I'm almost certain he doesn't remember anything from when he was five months old. I'm not so certain about the second one. We haven't really asked that much because I don't necessarily want to like implant memories for him. You know what I mean? I think it's really fortunate if he doesn't remember too much of it. But that being said, we're really open about Julia, that she can get sick. I mean, he knows that I wrote this book. He knows it's about our family and about how mommy can get sick sometimes and needs to take care of herself and that we love each other. And that's what the book is really about. And we plan absolutely as he grows to sort of let him know more. But like since his current understanding is that he doesn't really remember or had to confront this, at least in his consciousness, or at least as as far as I'm aware of his consciousness, 
we're not like, yep, yeah, mom's got bipolar and she gets these hallucinations and it's pretty scary. You know what I mean? Right. <laughs> but if we do have a fourth episode, which we're hoping doesn't happen, but if it does come, he'll already know that mom gets sick. It'll just be about trying to help him process what that sickness looks like as he's actually there, much more aware and able to process it more, you know? And so that's something that actually I think about a lot and I hope we'll never have to cross that bridge. I hope he'll never actually have to see his mom have another psychotic break. But if he does, depending on how old he is, I'm certainly going to want to protect his sense of security and comfort. I want to remind you of just how scary it was the first time for me. And I'm not scared of it anymore, but that doesn't mean it wouldn't be really scary for a little kid, you know, to see it happen to his mom. And so I just got to always be aware of that and try to make sure to protect him through that. Do you have a sort of backlying sense that you're sort of like waiting for the shoe to drop? Currently, no, because it's June. When we get to September, October, November, those months tend to be uh, a little more anxiety producing for us because all three of our hospitalizations have happened in either September, October, or November. I was going to ask you if there was any correlation made between the months and the time of the year and Julia's breakdowns. We've definitely recognized it. And Julia works in online marketing in the fashion and retail world. And so those are the months when they're planning for the big holiday extravaganzas. And so maybe that's connected, but we're not sure. But all I know is that there's no question about it that those time of the year, we tend to be a little more nervous. And we don't really want to talk about it because that can make the nerves bigger and more real. And we want to just kind of give it some space, you know, but like this fall in particular will be three years since her last episode. And the pattern has been fall 2009, fall 2012. So that's three years later and then fall 2014. So that's two years later. So last fall we were definitely nervous because it was two years and we were wondering, is that her pattern? I think this year with it being three years will also be one. But if we get through this fall, which we're super hopeful about, then I think honestly, we might put our guard down a little more than it already is because we'll have feel like we've broken the pattern, you know? Mm -hmm. But again, we can't take it for granted, you know? This could come in May for all we know, 15 years from now. But like, just for now, we sort of definitely like that's the time of the year where we're maybe the most a little bit more gentle with each other, a little bit more considerate because we know we've both got this in the back of our mind, but don't want to talk about it because if you do talk about it, we get each other worked up, you know? Right. So maybe you just ramp up the self-care and the love, exactly. just a double dose of love during the fall. So Julia is more proactive. She usually takes more of her lithium during that time of year. She kind of increases her dosage and then tapers back off once we get through the holidays because we're aware, but being more in tune with taking care of ourselves and having more self-awareness is super important. So I want to just ask you one more question. Sure. There's a lot of controversy these days about pharmacology and the use of antidepressants and antipsychotics and, you know, how big pharma turns patients into lifetime customers and how the medical practice often uses one size fits all approach I would feel remiss if I didn't ask you if you've ever considered alternatives to Julia's treatments. That's a great question. At first, I was 100% taking the marching orders from the doctors, no questions asked, doing my research, but then giving the medicine as prescribed, you know. Since 
my feelings about the medication has kind of evolved. I actually think that when Julia, I think that the antipsychotics for her are important when she's psychotic, but I think when she's out of the psychosis, the sort of muting effect that they have on her can actually make her feel more depressed. And in fact, I feel like sometimes what looks like depression might actually just be the side effect of antipsychotics, you know? But I think that my best answer for that is that what I've really grown to appreciate is that I can't speak for everybody. I can only say that each person has to find their own relationship to these types of medications. For Julia, she's found a pill that works for her and it helps her stay stable. And that means she can be thriving in her career the way she is. She can be a present mom and a present wife and all those really wonderful things of life, you know? But it's not just about medication. She needs to also put that in the context of therapy and self-care around making sure she gets to bed, safe self-care around staying active, eating healthily, all those other things, you know? So for her, it's really, the medicine is a piece of the puzzle, but it's certainly not the only puzzle. I think there's a lot of people who have found pathways where the medicine is not part of the puzzle. And just the fact that she's had these relapses, I think makes us more accepting that she's probably going to take these pills for the rest of her life. Even though I think we both would prefer in the ideal world that she's not. But the bummer of taking pills is much more manageable than the, the huge concerns around relapses into another psychotic episode. I get tons of emails from readers, actually, who recommend alternative methods. And I always research them. You know, I always look into them. But because we feel like we found a path that is working for us right now, I'm not that keen to go experimenting with it because if it doesn't go well, it could bring on a whole nother episode. And we really want to try to avoid that if we can. Right. Well, Mark, I want to thank you for sharing your story with Best Self Magazine. Despite it all, and because of it all, yours is truly a love story, a journey of traveling to the depths of fear and darkness, yet holding steadfastly. And one thing it really made me think about was that in a world of quick fixes, where things are often disposable and marriages regularly disintegrate, the story of your journey to holding on to each other is really testament to what is possible when we don't give up when we don't let go of our love and of our best selves. And I just want you to know that we are certainly rooting for your love story. Uh, Kristen, thank you so much. I cannot tell you how much this means to hear these like just really beautiful validating words. So thank you for wanting to share our story with your readers and your interest in the book. It was just so nice to talk. Well, this is... A fabulous book, My Lovely Wife in the Psych Ward. And again, it is a beautiful, beautiful human love story. And it's really of my belief that we hear most through the sharing of authentic story. And that is what you have done here. And again, I thank you. But I also thank Julia for giving her permission to open this journey of her life and her healing. And I really wish you all the best. Well, thanks a lot. I appreciate the time. Thank you, Mark. Good one, Kristen. Thank you for listening to this podcast. Learn more at bestselfmedia.com.